Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager Podcast with me, Jenny Plant, from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow the existing client relationships so their agency business can thrive. Welcome to episode three of the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast. I'm honoured to have a very, very well-known salesman and sales trainer in the UK joining me today, my friend, Marcus Kalki. I was lucky enough to be trained by Marcus when I was a publicist, and he was actually the one that inspired me to set up account management skills training to provide agency account managers with selling skills. Now, in this episode, Marcus shares some absolute gold for both agency account managers expanding the business, but also for those in agency new business. I really enjoyed this discussion. Marcus does not hold back when it comes to how he feels agencies need to up their game when it comes to professional selling. Uh, No one's ever going to accuse Marcus of being a shrinking violet. When it comes to speaking his mind, he's going to share with us the key to being successful in sales and the essential thing you have to do when looking to expand the business what not to do at the point of contract renewal if you want to avoid a bid situation, what you should be tracking and measuring in your new business activities and the cure for a weak and empty pipeline, where the area of real organic growth comes from and why very few agencies recognise it, and what the transition looks like when your new business person hands over to the account management team. He's going to share loads more tips, loads more advice and words of wisdom. He's even going to share with us the top 10 books he recommends every agency account manager should be reading. So I hope you enjoy this episode. So today I'm delighted to speak to probably the most well-known salesman and sales trainer in the UK, Marcus Kalki, who I also had the pleasure of being coached by in 2010, which you probably don't do anymore, Marcus, do you? Um, I do, but there's a twist. Okay, because you're far too important to do one-on-ones, I'm sure. Oh no, I do. I still love doing one-on-ones. <laughs> but you fundamentally changed my career and you were the most inspiring person I've ever met in my career. So I'm delighted oh, wow, to have you on you. this morning. He's also happens to be the author of the book, Making Channel Sales Work, who I'm holding a picture of now, and also the host of two fantastic podcasts, the Inquisitor podcast, which if you are in sales or in the business of sales or you're a business leader, then I highly recommend you read because it's like a masterclass in selling, frankly. And also a newer podcast called Scale Ups and Hypergrowth where he interviews leaders of disruptive tech companies about how they reach massive scale and hypergrowth. Without losing control is the important bit of the map. Um, right. Because most most companies that scale fast so, you know, hit the edge of a cliff and then fall off it. They don't go over. And the important thing about scale is that you can sustain it so that you end up creating a long-lived business with customers for life. I've been following your journey and I listened to the podcast and you've had some really, really high level people on there. It's been really impressive. <laughs> How do you manage that? Um, just by asking. Really? I mean, Is it that easy? Incredibly generous. Yeah, yeah. Really? Um, but I've learned so much from those podcasts. You could not even begin to imagine 
I honestly, every time you ask a question, I think, well, first of all, I was nervous about asking you on this podcast because I thought I'm not going to be able to reach that level of questioning. Fantastic. But listen, give us a bit of a short intro, anything that I missed out on just for the audience. Um, Been selling for 35 years, been with a company called Sandler for the last 17 years and just about to embark on a new journey. So got some really exciting plans ahead. And the podcasts are... (laughs) really an opportunity for me to learn from the best in the world and that's working out really nicely and got married three kids worked in probably about 450 500 different segments of the market and that range has been really useful because what i've discovered is that in a specialist field people who come with a broad range of experience and they have to exercise creativity, tend to be far more successful. So what I've found is that with minimal knowledge about what the product is, but an understanding of their customer, the kind of problems they have, the kind of better future they're looking for, I'm able to help people. So my typical client will grow three, four, 500% in a year if they apply what I teach. And what I've seen is people who were on their last leg in sales suddenly become top performers. And so I think people who, if you find their motivation and you understand what drives them and they're willing to be helped, then pretty much anybody can be helped. But it does require the willingness, not just the ability. And I think what you have is a dearth in sales management skill Sandra did a study in January, it came out, and found that only 6% of sales managers were actually fit for purpose. Last year, only 44% of individual reps hit quota, and only 13% of teams hit quota. So that gives you an indication of just how far we have to go. And if you ran a finance team or an engineering team with those sorts of results, I think you'd have a very short tenure. There's no doubt that your skills of helping people grow their businesses and get better at selling are so spot on. I mean, I've watched it myself. I've experienced it myself. But just going back one step, you mentioned that you're on a new journey. Is there anything that you can share right now or is this top secret? It's oh, all- damn. I thought it was going to get an exclusive. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you offline. Okay, cool. So basically, Marcus, my audience are creative agency account managers. So they're less about landing the business. They're more about expanding the business. Keeping it and expanding it. Exactly. So for those who perhaps don't have any sales training, they haven't got a background in any sort of techniques or strategy, can you talk a bit about where the hell they should start? Yeah, you should speak to your customers, speak to your clients and find out what it is they're trying to do and speak across their organization. The problem with so many creative agencies is they're fixated on winning the pitch and then they're fixated on not being kicked out. You know, I remember learning from you this one uh, choice turn of phrase, which is you're never more than three years from being fired by a client. And so uh, that, that was from your days at Publicis. And the reality is there's no need for that. If you develop two skills, listening and questioning, I've never listened my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of plenty. And most people, when they're asking questions, 
are asking questions to gather information, to gain understanding if they're slightly better. But the best questions are the ones that deliver insight. And this is where people go horrifically wrong because they don't prepare. They turn up and they prepare the pitch, but the pitch is broadcast. It's not collecting useful insight. It's not gathering the quality information. By the time you've turned up, you should already know most of the answers to the questions you were going to ask because you can do WWGS. What would Google say? It's not like that information isn't out in the public domain. And your buyers are very savvy nowadays. They've got the sum total of human knowledge uh, with a few clicks of a mouse available to them. So they've done a lot of their research and they're familiar, I think, with their symptoms, but they're not necessarily au fait with their cause of their problems. And it's your job to get beyond that because if you are making this initial sale, your job is to beat the status quo. 60% of buying cycles end up with the incumbent solution, whether it's uh, homegrown or another agency. Of the 40%, 74% of those will go to the company that displaces their current preferences, helps them recognize what the cost of staying stuck will be, creates enough points of difference. And this isn't about the product necessarily. It's about what matters to the customer and creates enough white space between you and the competition and the incumbent. And most importantly here is being able to allay their anticipated fear of regret and blame. Now that's how you win business. To keep it, uh, what you need to do is not introduce the shiny new object at the point of renewal. If you introduce that concept at the point of renewal, you almost guarantee it will go to a bid. Now the actual win rate on bicycles that get started and then end up in a bid is 2.6%. Very few agencies, very few vendors take the time to actually track and measure how many opportunities they engage in and then how many of those actually result in business. And when you consider the cost of pursuit, which is massive, you know, I don't know what your audience is made up of, whether they're small, medium or large agencies, but in large agencies, you know, 20, 30 people might be involved for two weeks. Now, when you think about these people being billed out at 500 to a grand a day, that's a shitload of money, if you the technical term. And uh, the problem is that if they win one in four of those that they get to pitch, then chances are they are going to end up eating into their profits, but they sink it into cost of doing business. Well, it shouldn't be a cost of doing business. That's just a lack of imagination. And if your imagination's out of focus, your eyes won't see. And most of the time we're steeped in tradition. This is the way we've always done it. And it boils down to, and I'll eventually stop ranting, uh, but it boils down to sellers not understanding their rights. Mm. There's so much that I want to dive into there, but just to get stepping back to the questioning, I don't know if you remember this, but when I first met you, you came into the publicist's office and I was thrilled that I was going to get my own coach. But within 20 minutes, I was in tears. Do you remember that? Remember, that that's the usual reaction women have. When- <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's not it- just women. <laughs> 
<laughs> in my training center i've always had boxes of tissues for that reason but i'm not surprised but what i realized afterwards was that you were doing a fantastic job of pain discovery on me and like you said i at the time in my role as general manager who ultimately the buck stopped with me in terms of the business i understood my symptoms but i didn't understand my cause and what you did was have a conversation with me not about you not about what you could do in fact i know i knew nothing about you you were doing all the listening and asking questions and I was just pouring out. And what you managed to do was make me realise what I didn't have in place. And for me, that was so powerful and transformative. So because I just think this is this is not something, this skill of asking the questions in the right way is so, it takes practice, doesn't it? It's not something you can acquire overnight. Yeah, um, like any skill that's worth acquiring, it takes time, practice, reinforcement. You have to fail. But the most important skill of all of those is listening. And listening is a whole body experience. It's not something you just do with your ears. You do it with your eyes, with your gut. You pay attention to how the person is responding, not just the words. I'm having a row with uh, my former associate because he's a huge Trump supporter and he's justifying and defending the Drano scenario because he's using the literal words. Whereas when you look at the rapper, the context in which that happened, it was fairly clear he wasn't suggesting for a second that this might be something useful to explore. He genuinely believed that you could inject the you know, Drano into people and uh, it would kill the virus. Uh, you could see that from the body language, the context of everything that went on around him and the slightly vacant and dumb look on him and the poor medical director uh, who is shrinking into her shoulders. So, you know, the, the reality is that the words themselves convey only part of the meaning. Um, when you're meeting with a prospect, your intent must be right. So the first two questions you must be able to answer yes to are, can I help? And if I can, am I the right person to help? Because if you're not, get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Do them a favor, do you a favor, save everyone time. Now, the problem there is that so often we have a weak or empty pipeline. So we need every deal. And the cure is prospect consistently, a little and often every day, um, so that eventually you end up with a sales funnel. Well, there, there are four things that I always get people to measure. And um, the first one is daily, unique, effective conversations with prospects. In the agency business, five to seven a day is probably more than adequate. If you have five to seven where you make the call, you get past the gatekeeper, you get through to the decision maker, and you engage in conversation around their pain with a contract that says, at the end of this conversation, you will either invite me in or you'll not, and we'll part friends. If you do five to seven of those a day, then chances are you will fill the top of the hopper. Second thing is the velocity. Um, the velocity with which opportunities go through your funnel. Now, the problem is that often you end up, and this is the non-PC version, uh, you end up with either a Dolly Partner or Kim Kardashian pipeline. Um, <laughs> so on them, the bulges are in the right place, but in your pipeline, they're in the wrong place. Um, because your funnel should really look like a thong. It shouldn't look like a baggy old pair of grey granny knickers, um, which is just bulging with stuff that isn't moving. You don't really know where you are. 
a load of non-prospects and it's you know that kind of uh, sales funnel is built on hope and hope is a shitty strategy now what it should look like is wide at the top with lots of opportunity and you're filtering and disqualifying and disqualifying and disqualifying and disqualifying and all the good stuff should be in the gusset and there you're looking for three to five times more at the qualified moving to closable stage then you need to hit your quota. So if you have a million dollar quota, uh, you need three million to five million at the qualified moving to closable stage. Within seven months, it should be three times. Uh, within 12 months, it should be five times. Now, if you have five times as much at that stage in the hopper, at that stage, um, then you have choice and you prospect for choice. Uh, the other thing that I'm looking at is the conversion rate of first to second meetings. When you consider the cost of acquiring a lead, the cost of pursuit, and you consider that seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting on average, um, that is a crashing waste. So you need to rehearse, or you need a plan, then you need to rehearse. And my rule of thumb is for every minute you're in front of the prospect, you need three minutes of uh, rehearsal time. And especially when you're in an account management role, you need to rehearse and prepare. You need to have a cadence of accountability. You need to have regular contact with your customers or your clients. And these would vary from maybe fortnightly calls with different people in the organization, not just the immediate buyer, but the people who are affected by the work that you do. Senior leadership, marketing, operations, sales, legal, finance, you know, all these different departments, you need to engage with them because they're a business and they are a system. And if you change one thing, then it affects other parts. On that point, you mentioned before, because I can imagine someone's listening to this as an account manager. And first of all, one of the things they always say is many account managers in creative agencies have like a dual role. Half of it is kind of project management, essentially, and the other half is actually where they're tasked with growing an account and developing relationships. Now, when you say, look, you've got all of these opportunities to expand your relationship building within the same client company, finance, procurement, etc., you said earlier on about having their rights you know, where's the confidence level and how do I even start that conversation? Why would they want to talk to little old me kind of thing? Well, first of all, the most important relationship you have is the one with yourself. And this is your self-concept. You will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. So if you were to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10 in terms of your role, you might give yourself a seven. And on a good day, you'll be a nine. And on a bad day, you'll be a five. Okay, and you average around the seven mark. However, role and identity are very different. Role is what you do, your functions. Identity is who you are. Now, if you cannot look yourself in the mirror and be proud of the person that you are, then you're going to have a problem. If you run negative scripts like, who am I to speak to the chief executive? Who am I? Uh, you know, I'm just uh, an account manager or an account director. So what? And these are people who have problems that you are the expert in helping to fix. If you don't see yourself as having equal business stature, then you've automatically given away your power and you've created this disparity. So you've turned it into a parent-child relationship. And what you need is adult to adult. You need two grown-ups meeting at the table to try and resolve their problem. And what you want them to do is step out of the goal 
and it's both you and them kicking into an open goal against their problem. You need to be partners. Now, partners help each other get better. So another right that you have is to establish very clearly upfront what the terms of engagement are, how you escalate, how you will hold one another to account. We use a tool called the client-centric satisfaction tool, and it lists a number of areas that we are in control of, uh, but directly affect the customer's experience. And we get them to pick five of those. And every quarter, we are held to account. Our feet are put in the fire until they're good and crispy. And they're allowed to tell us the truth, and we're allowed to tell them the truth, because we hold them to account as well. But the problem is that because agencies have historically bought into three really awful lies. The customer is king, the buyer is always right, and the man with the gold makes the rules. Okay, let's deal with them. First of all, the customer is not king. The customer is never more or less than your equal. The buyer is not always right, but when they're wrong, it's often your fault. And the man with the gold has the commodity, which is cash, in 2010, in the depths of the last recession, tramps had cash. Uh, that must give an indication of just how ubiquitous cash is. Today, $5 trillion is going through the global economy. Just today. Okay, so it's not that there isn't money around. People want to spend it on something other than what you're selling because they, you've been outsold by their internal narrative or by something else, by a competitor, by the status quo. You've been outsold. So the, the responsibility comes on to us. And if we don't understand that we have the right to do business with the right kind of people, we have the right to say no, we have the right to equal business stature, we have the right to have fun, we have the right to lunch once we've earned it. Yeah, there is no such thing as a free lunch. This is tough. And account management is a really difficult job, but it's simple. You have to do the basics well consistently over time and mean it. But very few people do. I remember working with one agency years back and one of the two founders uh, kept blathering on about being creative. Um, no one buys creative. They want to sell more shit, okay? If your advertising is boring, but it works, who cares? The fact that you've got lots of awards doesn't mean that you've actually helped them sell anything. Because let's face it, agencies with awards have generally bribed the publication to get them. So you talked about something earlier on that I want to go back to because this for me was probably the biggest powerful element of the Sandler training system, which is transactional analysis. And actually, it's about your own inter internal state and how you react in the moment, because we're talking about people to people relationships, aren't we? So can you talk a little bit more about transactional analysis? You referred earlier about being in adult to adult state and how it relates to selling specifically from an account management point of view. Of all the psychological models or methods I've come across, TA, transaction analysis, seems to be the one works universally and it's unfussy. There's a really good book called How to Run Your Own Life by a guy called Ute Mining, which I'd urge everybody to get a copy of. Now, it's only available secondhand. It'll cost you over 100 quid. But... It's one of the best introductions to TA, but also to life. And it's all about a Martian who pops down to Earth and then discovers just how screwed up we are. Now, another good book that's really worth a read is TA for Kids, Brackets and Adults by Alvin Freed. And again, TA is essentially understanding how we engage in communication transactions 
and how we play games with one another. Now, this is the negative side of it. And this can be described on three points of a triangle. It's called the drama triangle and ego thrives on drama. So bear that in mind when I describe the three positions. If you imagine an equilateral triangle on its sharp point with the victim at the bottom, the voice of the victim goes, it's not fair, this always happened, you always do this to me, save me. Now, lots of customers play the role of victim. Poor me, my wooden leg, you know, I don't have any budget, times are tough, yeah? And that encourages two other types. So if you imagine on the top left-hand corner, you've got the persecutor. Now, the persecutor comes with a jabby index finger. You piece of shit. You always, you never, you're such a disappointment. You ad people, you branding people, you PR people, you're all the same. Yeah, you make these promises and you do nothing. And it comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you and diminishes you at an identity level. And then you have the rescuer. Now, rescuing is helping without boundaries or permission. Rescuing is mollycoddling. It's permissive. It allows people to take the piss. It allows people to bully them. And what it also becomes is micromanaging. When we first engaged, you were quite a, a rescuer. Uh, you were trying to rescue your people. You were trying to rescue your clients. And the problem with that is that you end up run ragged. Um, you get upward delegation. Uh, you create learned helplessness around you. Persecutors uh, create the conditions for the minimum amount of work and effort necessary to not be noticed. You don't put your head above the parapet because it will get shot down. And you try not to be noticed by being average. It creates mediocrity, okay? Which again, was your previous bosses in those uh, companies without <laughs> wanting to get you into trouble. You've left <laughs> us, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah, 10 okay. years ago, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they used to be very persecuting. And uh, there was this, you know, what's happening about this? What's happening about that? And you were getting sucked into all of these bids that were pointless because they were confusing activity with meaningful action. Okay. Now, anytime you hear anyone playing the role of the victim, the persecutor or the rescuer, that's someone's ego being hooked. Now, that means that you tend to be stuck in the past or worrying about the future. It creates a blame culture. There's a lot of prejudice, prejudgment. There's uh, not only you being judged and judging yourself, but there's excuse making, there's blaming. It's where agencies create these fiefdoms and stovepipes and you end up with political infighting. It's tough enough. What the hell are you doing fighting amongst yourselves? You, know, you should all be aligned working with the customer against their competition. And that way you've been, you're serving them. The individuals within those accounts, they have problems that they need help with. And it's your job, if you can't help them, to find someone who can and become a partner so that you're raising the tide and raising all boats. Um, now, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. So instead of this drama triangle, a victim, persecutor, rescuer, you go what I call below the line. And this is a, a triangle on its stable flat base. And at the bottom left, you have vulnerability. You need to be vulnerable. And the word vulnerable comes from the Latin vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable, to put yourself in harm's way and do it anyway. It's an act of courage. Vulnerability is probably the pinnacle of courage. Then uh, you have on the top, nurturing and empathic. 
So you nurture these people, but also you empathize without falling into buyer empathy. So buyer empathy is where you say, you know, if it were me, I'd probably want a discount. That's bad. Okay. But if you can empathize with the pressure that they're under, the stress that they're feeling, the worry that they're experiencing, then you have a fighting chance of actually doing something to help them because you're staying in your rational mind. And also then bottom right is being assertive. Now that doesn't mean being aggressive. It means establishing clear boundaries and clear expectations. And this is where things go wrong very often. Ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. And this is where ambiguity at the top of your organization leads to politics at the bottom. So ambiguity is another example of what happens in that drama triangle. Whereas within the winner's triangle, you are absolutely clear, specific, and certain about what both sides have agreed. Everyone knows what their roles are, what their responsibilities are. You know how to escalate. You know uh, how to confront constructively the problems. So you're not afraid of conflict. Agencies should be challenging their customers, their clients. They shouldn't be passively taking whatever their crappy brief is. Um, you know, a, a great example of this is one uh, consumer brand that was following the CMO's vision. And bear in mind, the brand is determined by your customers, not by your CMO. And he had this vision that they were an adventure brand. So all of them, media and advertising, was geared around people base jumping and windsurfing and climbing the you know, El Capitan and all of that crap. Um, but in their biggest market, Hong Kong and China, people saw their brand as an opportunity to go out and be seen in public as being smart and sophisticated. So the minute they got rid of that idiotic message, sales went up 62 million in one quarter. Wow. So it's starting with the customer. You start with the customer. You need to speak to the customer. You need to listen to the customer. And again, I, I do a lot of work in tech where they're fixated with big data. Actually, it's the small data that matters in my book. Um, it's, the, it's the individual conversations that you're having. Um, record them. Get transcriptions of them. Break them down. Look for patterns. Look for the clues in those small conversations and that small data as to what the customer needs and wants, what they want to know, what they want to be known for, what they want to have happen. The thing is, this on the surface, it seems so easy, doesn't it? Listening, actively listening, asking the right questions, empathizing. But actually, in reality, this is my experience. People don't do it that well. Like I remember going back to the conversation we had at the beginning was I really felt heard. I felt understood. You know, within minutes of meeting you, I felt like I'd known you for years. So you obviously were putting all of that in place to not only build the rapport, but also to make me feel that I actually was being heard and listened to. No one knew actually in my job that at the time my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Now that added another layer to all of the political bollocks that was going on you know, at the time. So I look back on this and think, you came into my life at the right time with the right skill set to help me. And it wasn't just empathising. It was about making my business better. I'm getting all upset now. But going back to, I know that you feel passionately about sales management and I do too, because actually when I'm invited in to help account managers, I often realise that actually the problem doesn't lie with the account manager. It lies with the, the management yeah, it's above. Um, you know, um, a fish rots from the head down, an old Russian proverb. 
and the pressure that you were under was astronomical. It was heartbreaking to watch as well because it was utterly unfair. And what you were acting as for the rest of your team was a buffer. Now, you were doing a great job of, of doing that, but it was exceptionally unfair. And more often than not, it's because senior management is so fixated on the wrong things. And I put this down to a large extent to the work, their business model, because if you're publicly listed, then you have to work towards quarterly reporting and you have to keep your investors happy, which is not the way to build a long-lived, sustainable business that has strong fundamentals. And what you end up doing is creating a business that is chasing logos, chasing revenue, not profit, isn't focused on the long term. They say that they are, um, but the reality, I mean, get this, uh, depending on your industry, it costs somewhere between six and 21 times more to acquire a new customer than sell to an existing customer. If you're selling to an enterprise, the enterprise actually is a marketplace in and of itself. You have the organic growth, which is sell them something similar but different, more of the same, and you can grow what you've got. Uh, then you have um, their supply chain. You have their partner network. And again, most account managers are not really looking at that. It never crosses their mind. But if you ask for referrals into those organizations, you can build your pipeline brilliantly. Alumni is another area. You can look at the organic structure of the family. So parent companies, sister companies, subsidiary companies, you know, all of those. And also look at the customer's customer. Why is it so few salespeople, whether they're, whatever industry they're in, are, folk, are spending any time at all, either on the supply chain and the partner network or the customer's customer? All of those just as viably be customers or clients for you. Absolutely. And part of the problem here is that leadership and management is fixated on the numbers. You cannot manage the numbers. The numbers are a byproduct of the behavior of the inputs. And they're fixated on lagging indicators because by the time the revenue number comes in, you've already hit the iceberg and you're two thirds of the way to the bottom of the Atlantic. You know, I, I remember when we first started working together, having these conversations with you, trying to work out, okay, what is it that we need to be seen to be doing versus what we're actually going to do so that we can get a strong foundation? You know, you focusing on building the pipeline up, making sure prospecting was happening, making sure that you were having the right conversations with the ideal customers. Because I remember there was a guy in your sales operations team whose name... Um, uh, Don't say it. in my mind. <laughs> and, and he ended up plowing three million pounds worth of pointless pipeline into your business that you could never win. But you had to go after it because your leadership had this idiotic lottery mentality, um, which is, you know, you've got to be in it to win it. No, you don't. You only want to be in the ones you can and will win. And you need to disqualify hard. And this is the other thing coming back to our rights. You have the right to say no. And don't go after companies that are 72% fit to your ideal customer. Only go after the companies that are 100% fit. In fact, my newsletter this month is exactly on this. I'm just finishing it now. And you know, focus on your ideal customer. But to do that, you have to know who your ideal customer is. And 
be clear about who your ideal customer is not so you can say no don't get involved in those bids and tenders don't get involved in those pursuits because if they're not absolutely right they will suck you dry they'll ask for things that you can't deliver or that will be non-core to your core customers they'll drag you in with complaints and frustration uh, and they'll they'll suck your leadership and management dry as well and meanwhile, your higher-ups uh, are sat there quietly counting the coin because they're working everybody to the point where they're burning out. And that's crazy. It was probably one of the most frustrating things for me. Once again, we'd started working together was understanding why are we qualifying, right? Because we didn't qualify. It was saying yes to everything, which obviously has an opportunity cost because it's the yeah. putting a strain not only on the team, but also on the the current clients that you've got. Exactly. So I think I felt very sort of powerless. I mean, for agency owners that are in control of the qualifying process, I think the other downside is if your business isn't strong, you don't have a strong cash flow. Because don't forget, most of us are pricing on hours, number of hours rather than outputs or outcomes. So again, from a pricing perspective, you've got problems. <laughs> Um, also, from a positioning point of view, like you said before, we, we don't have a narrow enough focus a lot of the time, and therefore you can't charge more. So I think there's kind of lots of elements. In the absence of value, the conversation will descend to cost very quickly. Mm. And agencies, media companies across the board, whether your web development, whether your SEO, uh, whether your advertising, whether your branding, um, you know, whatever it happens to be digital, the conversation invariably turns into hourly rate in a very short space of time. I remember I was working with our colleague, Mike, and he was invited to pitch for a piece of business. And we worked on this response, which was WPP only sells at rate card. Okay, to every question when they were in this 19-way bid, 19 people and 19 different agencies. And they ended up winning it. And the point being, they only sold at rate card because it meant that they were in a position to offer the best service. Because if you're not scrabbling around for profit because you're under pressure for that one as well, then you don't have to worry about where the next penny is going to come from. If you've got the right customers, you're serving them really well. You're focused on service, not servitude. You see yourself as their equal. Then you can challenge them. You can bring your best people to bear. They're not being stretched on seven other bids that they shouldn't be involved in. Your creatives aren't being sucked from pillar to post. There are clear demarcation lines as to how often revisions can happen in order to ensure that the customer doesn't take the piss because God knows they do. They have to be clear about their thinking and that's your job. That's a sales disability. Like I said, when the customer's wrong, it's often because it's our fault. Uh, we haven't established clear boundaries. We haven't established exactly what is required. We haven't made clear the process to make sure that they don't flip-flop and chop and change. Because I saw that in media all the time. For the last 20 years, I've seen agencies being dragged around by the, you know, the scruff of the neck, being told, oh, well, why don't we uh, focus on shampoo this week? So this week we're going to do body wash. Oh, no, we're going to move to toothpaste next. And so nothing ever gets done. And another really important skill is this whole process of contracting. It's agree at the beginning what you in both intend to happen by the end and make sure at the end that someone is accountable. One individual is responsible 
with a date and a time by which they will deliver a certain piece of work or an action. The people who need to be consulted and informed are also identified. You understand who has high, medium or low influence over a decision and also understand the different cast of characters who are involved. So you have ultimate power. So sign off authority. You have decision makers and there are many decision makers often in an enterprise on average, you're going to be somewhere between six and seven influences. And the account coverage is generally very poor. There needs to be someone with chief in their title, ideally, because if you're only dealing with managers, they have to defer up for sign-off. You need to make sure that you are looking at the influencers, the recommenders, the specifiers, the technical buyers, the user buyers, the financial buyers. And this is stuff that most agencies do none of. They just go in and blindly take a, a brief and then come back four weeks later or two weeks later to do a, a load of free consulting. And then they wonder why their win-loss rate is so terrible. And then they blame the customer. It's not the customer's fault. You, know, you cannot blame prospects for doing something to you. You never said they couldn't do. So tell people you don't get involved in beauty parades and bids. See how they respond. And say no three times, because if they really want you, then you've got some leverage. If they don't and you're just column fodder, which is what most agencies act as, then all you're doing is free consulting because they're looking for you for the cheapest price. You know, Joe blogs up the road for uh, the most innovative ideas. You know, Fred Jones for best service. And they give all three of those to their preferred supplier and they get paid for all of your hard work. That's crazy. I absolutely. So you've shared so many tips for people responsible for new business and agencies, Marcus. This is brilliant. Some the benchmark data as well, which is fantastic. And this is professional selling. I'm interested to ask you one question because it's been coming up quite a lot recently. Is when in an agency it goes from the new business team to the account management team, what should that transition look like to set the account manager up for success? Right. First of all, you need to make sure that the relationships are handed over. So introductions need to be made from the new business to the account manager to all the different cast of characters. The expectations need to be documented and a cadence of regular contact needs to be put in place. I would look at a quarterly value review rather than a quarterly business review. Quarterly business review is typically where you turn up with your market stall and you try and pitch something else. A quarterly value review is about holding each other to account. It's about establishing right from the outset what their vision is over the next 6, 12, 18, 24, 36, 60 months and looking at the direction they're trying to take their business so that you can stay ahead of where they are, making sure that you're co-developing a plan. And um, so if resources required, identify what those resources will be, when they will be required, what the trigger points are, and identify what budget is going to be required in order to be able to recruit them. Make sure that you understand the competitive landscape. So as an account manager with the new business person, what I would do is sit with the customer and spend time understanding the impact of their various competition. So not only your competition you need to understand, but I think you also need to understand your customer's competition. If you understand the customer's competition, then you can identify a whole raft of stuff. So for example, you, know, you can identify uh, what the facts are 
uh, what their products and services are, how well they perform, which markets they operate in, who their people are, how they're positioned, what their value proposition and pricing is, their accounts, what their strengths and weaknesses are, what their plans are. And a question I always like to get an answer to is what is the weakness in their strength? Because if we can exploit that weakness in a competitor's strength, then it allows us to start creating campaigns and messaging to exploit it. Now, the beauty of that is that you can start taking market share away from the competition, which is where you should be taking it from. And helping your customer to do that makes them look good. Your job is to always help make your customer the hero of your story. Stop talking about you, your agency, your past glories. No one cares. That's like showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. Focus on how you helped a client achieve their strategic objectives, how they benefited from it, what they learned, what journey they went through, the ups and the downs, because I think that makes the story real. Make sure that you are very clear in your messaging, how it serves them. And that handover piece needs to encompass a lot of that. You need to understand where they've come from, where they are and where they're headed. And that needs to be part of the handover. You need to have a regular cadence of meetings, typically every quarter where you get together and you work out what's working, what isn't, what you need to do more of, what you need to do less of. Every fortnight, I would have what's called a recon call with someone within the organization as the account manager. Um, so have them remind you what you agreed to do between now and the last time you spoke or remember what it was like before you came in then what are you not doing well? What are they not happy with? Because you don't want molehills to turn into mountains. And if they've identified something, then give a commitment as to when you will come back with action. It's like when you go to a hotel and they ask you for feedback and you never hear back from them as to what they've done with that feedback. That's frustrating. So that's why you end up with 0.03% response rates. And you know that, that kind of response rate is awful. What, I mean, who, who on earth would throw that much shit at the wall and hope uh, just a fraction would stick? Yeah. Um, Customer surveys, again, be really careful about customer surveys because they are built in with intrinsic bias from the questions. And often the customer survey questions are intended to try and make you look good. It's freeform conversation, spontaneous conversation with customers that's got the really rich, useful data. Once you've identified the negatives and you've given a commitment when you'll come back and what action you'll take, then ask what's changed for the better because that allows them to warm up and it sets you up for the next thing, which is where are the opportunities for us to help you over the next three, six, nine, 12 months? Because this is where they will tell you how to sell to them and what to sell to them and what are the next steps. So you always have to agree a next step. Now, other things that you should be doing at the handover stage, you should make sure that you've done your research. You need to understand where this company is and the pressure that they're under. So two great sources of information, the annual report and accounts. Section 1A is made up of all the blue sky you know, bullshit that the CEO and chairman and CFO are peddling to their investors. Section 1B is a really interesting bit. This is all the caveats as to why Section 1A is full of lies. Now, the other thing that you can do if you're selling to a publicly listed company is listen to the quarterly analyst calls where they're being taken through the grist mill and being held to account by the markets. You can get hold of those transcriptions and that will then tell you where you need to focus your attention to help them at a strategic level and stop selling advertising, stop selling media. 
all media is, is a means by which they can get their work done or their job done and achieve their goals. Now, you can probably save them money. I can save them money. That puts us in competition. Uh, you can help them be more effective, more efficient, uh, acquire new customers, uh, to grow, open new markets. And those are the things that they care about. Of course it is. It's about helping them with solving their business problems, isn't yeah. it? We're selling business outcomes and we're helping them not only from the business perspective, but from the personal perspective. Yeah. Marcus, this has been absolute gold. You've just shared tip after tip after tip. I've been scribbling notes. I know that everyone's going to take loads of value from this. You mentioned a few book recommendations, but apart from your podcast, obviously, to be listening to, are there any other book recommendations, particularly for account managers that you can think of? Because I know you're an avid reader. Yeah, Just Listen by Mark Goulston is a must read. Um, for, I mean, if you just part the species, you should read it. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking to Crazy by him is also very good. And that's really dealing with your own demons first. Because as Philip Larkin put it, you know, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. And everybody that you know is a sick puppy. So, you know, understand that. I would read Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And the basic premise there is do less but better on purpose. What you say no to is more important than what you say yes to. I would also read uh, Asking Questions by Antonio Garrido. Oh, my God. That is just such a good read. Yeah. Yeah. It's just packed full of useful, applicable technique. And fun. It's a fun read as well. It's quite fun. Uh, Jody Williamson's The Contrarian Salesman is a really good one as well. Uh, That's a little parable about the journey someone goes through uh, to move away from the free consulting model to actually selling. Um, the Sales Coach's Playbook by Bill Bartlett is a must read. Just bought that um, one. And I would also suggest The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham, which is a fabulous read for managers and leaders. The Right Use of Power by Peter Block is a fabulous read as well. And I'm just trying to think. I've, I'm reading so many. Um, oh, uh, The Context Marketing uh, Revolution by uh, Matthew Sweezy and Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer because they all talk about humanizing your marketing and personalizing it. And the really important thing, let me give you a useful actionable item, okay? Um, I have a framework for getting testimonials that uh, tell the story that I want, okay? So this is a testimonial template. Question one, who are you and who do you serve? Question two, what problem initially caused you to invite me in to help you? Question three, what results have you had? I want pounds, shillings, pence, percentages, all that stuff, so hard and soft. Okay, what initial reservations did you have about working with me? Because that helps me neutralize objections. What surprised you about working with me? Was it fun and would you recommend me and why? Now, if you look through my LinkedIn profile, you will see well over 100 testimonials that follow that framework. Yes. And they're that long. You know, they're they're, they're yeah. a full page. Well, that I mean, that is so golden for anyone listening because, A, they're not asking for testimonials or referrals. But when you do, you know, having them structured that way, obviously, is a lot easier. I mean, I love a format or a framework anyway, but that's going to be so much easier for people looking to work with you, isn't it? Well, um, people struggle to answer a statement, but they find it really easy to answer a question. 
And you know, your brain is, uh, is always looking for the answers to questions. And you never suffer from writer's block. I mean, another good tip, if you're producing content, so that virtually all my business comes from either content production, which makes the customer the hero and puts them in the story and enters the conversation they're already having. It comes through personal referral and warm introduction recommendation. And it comes from actually people seeing me do what I do, either on podcasts or live events, that kind of thing, or joining one of my classes. Now, if they see that, then they can experience it for themselves. They make up their own mind. The reality is that the most powerful content is the stuff that my customers write about me. That's golden. I mean, the flurry of inquiries that come off the back of that. Uh, you know, they, they are worth 10 times a cold, 20 times a cold lead. I absolutely agree. This has been so valuable, not just for account managers, but also for agency leaders, owners, because you're absolutely right. I mean, I've watched, I mean, if you're not following Marcus, you should, because what he shared today has just been fantastic. But I know how active you are on LinkedIn and how much value you share for free, Marcus. So to that point, where can people reach you? And who do you want to reach you as well? Well, the people that I'm really interested in are owners and founders who want to grow their business by 200% per annum compound over a five to eight year period. And they're not afraid of breaking the mold, breaking the rules. They need to be ambitious. They need to be honest. They need to be willing to take direction. And they need to be understand the difference between risking and sacrificing. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility you might lose some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value and there's no upside. And most people confuse the two and they spend their life in sacrifice. So what I'm looking for in particular are tech companies in the 10 to 50 million mark who are really looking to expand and they want to grow, but build a really profitable, sustainable business with a long lived future uh, where they secure lifetime customers, where they are in control and they don't have to give away either equity or power to private equity or venture capital um, who are the devil incarnate. Brilliant. And if anyone wants to follow Marcus on LinkedIn, you spell Kauki, C-A-U-C-H-I. And any yeah. other email address or any contact details? Um, I'm on Twitter as capital T-H-E underscore Inquisitor with a capital I. Not sure it makes any difference, but anyway, that's how I've always done it. Um, you can catch me on Facebook, although generally that's me just ranting. And the podcast, like I said, you know, the, the Inquisitor podcast, which is marcuskauke.podbean.com. It's on Apple and Spotify and all other platforms. And if you really want to scale up, then the scale ups and hyper growth dot podbean.com also available apple and spotify i can send you the links and um, then you, i'll put all the links in the show notes marcus this has been fantastic thank you so so much for joining me i know that everyone that listens to this are going to take loads of notes there's loads of gold there so thank you so much for sharing so much value thank you and I, the other thing is i've um, started a newsletter aptly no, uh, called the grumbler so I'll send you the link for that as well in the chat. And if, if anyone wants to get in touch, get in touch. I mean, I'm actually more approachable <laughs> than I sound. You're always pr- approachable. Thank you so much, Marcus. This has been amazing. You are amazing. You are a legend. Thank you. You are too. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Marcus. And if you don't want to miss an episode, please subscribe to the podcast. 
And if you like it, I'd love if you would leave a review. And if you don't love it and would like to give me some feedback, please send me an email to jenny at accountmanagementskills.com. Thanks for listening. 